0: It gives me huge pleasure to welcome Fiona Reynolds to to the Sky Arts Theatre and to the um, Hay Festival. Um, Fiona is probably known to many of you. She's about to change her life and become Master of Emanuel College at Cambridge. She is a non-exec director of the BBC. Many other things, but I'm only going to mention three. And you probably all know her uh, for her 11 years as Director-General of the National Trust. She has done an enormous amount to preserve and make people uh, love our landscape. And therefore, I can't think of anyone more suited to give you a a talk uh, about just how much we should value it. Thank Fiona, Thank you.
1: Thank you very much, and it's a great pleasure to be here. I love coming to Hay, and uh, to see some friends in the audience as well. Thank you very much. But as you see, I'm really talking about landscape and Britishness, and uh, the debate about Britishness is almost as intense as it's ever been. And frankly, if you wanted to come to a talk about the politics of Britishness and the future of the uh, United Kingdom and Europe, then you've come to the wrong place, because I'm not going to talk about those things at all. What I am going to talk about is our relationship with landscape, uh, the relationship between people and place, which, uh, when the slides work... Sorry, there we go. Got it right. When the slides work, this is, for me, that the, the nurturing and the, the specialness of our relationship with landscape is really the subject of what I want to talk about. What defines us as people? What makes us... Who we are. And of course, there are many dimensions to that, aren't there? You know, our character, our family, our experience, our our education. But above all, my proposition really here is that our relationship with place is pretty close to the heart of what we are. And there's something particularly special about our place, the British Isles, which lends itself to a sense of culture and identity and self-worth. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that the British Isles is one landscape, that there is one culture that defines us. In fact, I'm I'm saying the reverse, because we live in one of the most diverse and changing and extraordinarily uh, intimate landscapes uh, of anywhere in the world. In fact, you only have to look at a geology map of Great Britain to see those extraordinary colours, the wonderful the line of limestone through the country, the South Downs, the North Downs, the chalk, the ancient rocks of the North and the West to get a sense of that extraordinary diversity of our landscape. And that's reflected in our people too. We are becoming ever more diverse as people too. But that diversity is then reflected in what our landscape looks like. Travel around... Britain, and I'm going to include a little bit of Northern Ireland here, I'm afraid, cheekily, and within dozens of miles, certainly within hundreds, you see the most extraordinary diversity of landscapes. So from the uh, gorse strewn cliffs of of West Wales to the lowland pastures of of the east of England, this is Hatfield Forest, and the craggy mountains of the Lake District and Snowdonia to the below sea-level marshes of Wiccan Fen near Cambridge, the patchwork landscape of the English marches, here we are um, on the Herefordshire border, um, through to the open moors of the central spine of England, Kinder Scout, the soaring peaks and plunging lochs of Scotland, the gently glacial lakes of Fermanagh, to Dorset's wonderful coastline with the, the golden cap there and the beach woodlands, Of the Chilterns. And our building materials and building styles reflect this geological diversity too. You've got the slate and stone of the Lake District, you've got the honey coloured Cotswolds, the brick of the Midlands, the cool limestone of the Yorkshire Dales, a beautifully malleable Ham Hill stone, which is Montacute House in Somerset, Edinburgh's wonderful pinky granite and sandstone. And the lovely half-timbered houses, again, here on the Welsh borders. So it's an endlessly rich and stimulating landscape. And it has a special and intimate charm that is completely different from landscapes you discover anywhere else in the world. And I came across this lovely quote by Stevens, the ageing butler in Kazuo Shigeru's Remains of the Day. He said, it is the very lack of obvious spectacle that sets the beauty of our land, England, he was talking about, apart. What is pertinent is the calmness of the beauty, its sense of restraint. It is as though the land knows of its own beauty, of its own greatness, and feels no need to shout about it. In comparison, the sorts of sights in such places as Africa or America, though undoubtedly very exciting, would I'm sure strike the objective viewer as inferior on account of their unseemly demonstrativeness. So what, about, what is it about this quiet, undemonstrative beauty? How does that impact on, on who we are and what we are? And so to begin to understand it, I think we need to look back at what we mean by landscape and character. And I want to start with a revolutionary book, this one. The Making of the English Landscape, by W.G. Hoskins, published in 1955, combining geography with history, politics with economics, agricultural history with the great industrial story of England, it established a completely new discipline in thinking in the post-war period, and he set out to explain why and how our landscape has evolved, and why physically, although it's such a small place, why Kent is so different from Essex, why you could never confuse Cumbria with Cornwall, and why this real sense of character has emerged. And it's, it's a book that's really far too little known today. But at the time, in the 1950s, it was a bestseller. And really, why was it a bestseller? Well, we'd just come out of the war. And these extraordinary images, the sort of plangent rural idyll, our Britain, fight for it now, was the sort of rallying cry behind a nation, the sort of strained patriotism of hardship and loss was brought through this kind of image, a sense of meaning and value. And these posters inspired a sense of our landscape, of our history, and of the places that people love. So Hoskins' book, coming out in the 50s, fed people's hunger to know and understand and appreciate the landscape, which so recently under threat had now become so precious. But at a simpler level, his narrative simply rang true. And I had that same moment of recognition when I first came across him as an undergraduate in my first year of geography at Cambridge, when I saw this book and suddenly realized but it made sense in a very simple way. You look at a landscape like the Yorkshire Dales, and you just know that no pre-existing discipline had adequately explained this extraordinary man-made pattern of development. And so Hoskins captured this sense of, over time, constantly changing, not a static landscape, but one which you could read and understand. And he explained fundamentally how the underlying geology and geomorphology Shaped by patterns of settlement, by patterns of farming, by big public decisions like the corn laws or the enclosures, um, the dissolution of the monasteries, all those events in history had shaped our landscape, explained why tiny little fields persisted in the southwest while East Anglia had become a prairie. He explained why these stone walls march across upland England and why there are huge plantations of oak across the great estates from the late 18th century. He explained why there are clustered settlements in Hampshire and Gloucestershire and long, narrow ones in East Anglia. But he also explained that it wasn't one process and resulting in the landscape looking the same. Sometimes earlier settlement patterns are still visible. Sometimes they've been wiped out, perhaps by an 18th-century-designed landscape or by later development. And I think it it shines a different light on history. We're used to stories of kings and queens and wars and, you know, big events that we all recall. Hoskins said something different. He talked about the decisions which had had an impact on land use. And in the process, he told a much older, much slower, and much more complex story. He talked about three great revolutions. The very first revolution took place about 2,000 years BC. This is a very old landscape. Places like this, we think, have never been plowed, but the pre-Bronze Age, the Bronze Age plowing, was more extensive than even... Currently, many of our, our current ploughed areas, this is a, a wonderful valley in Gloucestershire, the limits of agriculture then were greater than in many places they are now. The Second Great Revolution took place between the 9th and 12th centuries, which was the establishment of the nucleated village, the clusters of houses around a village centre with the open fields around them. That, again, we think of as being perhaps a, a medieval phenomenon, but no, it's much earlier. And through that process, the towns began to emerge and were planned for. And this process really survived the collapse of population and the political upheavals of the 14th and 15th centuries, including the Black Death. And his third revolution, this is all a long time ago, was the technological revolution, starting in the 16th century with very early developments such as these, this is Abidulais Falls, the harnessing of the power of water um, from the river valleys. But of course, this process continues to the present day with the enormous developments of the 20th century. But a revolution which also took place in farming, where farming traditionally had been limited by the strength of a man or the strength of a horse to the 20th century's extraordinary industrialized agricultural landscapes. So looking through Hoskins' eyes, we see landscape very differently. We see the events that had an impact um, on shaping the history and the development of our landscape, and these events take on a new and more significant perspective. But his message fundamentally was one about complexity and individuality, a myriad of fascinating details which shape a particular place and in which man's hand is ever present. And he concluded his book with a description. Of the view from his Victorian rectory in Oxfordshire. He spoke of ancient orchards, of medieval fish ponds and a watermill, hedge banks, and a designed park around a Victorian house. And we think, how wonderful, Hoskins, lucky you! But then, Lucky me, I look from my own study window and I see the source of the Thames just to the left, probably associated with it an Iron Age hill fort, a Roman camp just to the right, a deserted medieval village in that very woodland across there, an 11th century church, a designed landscape with Trafalgar-planted woodlands, a canal through that little shallow valley... The Thames and Seven, which was a feat of engineering in the 1750s, but it never worked because it's on limestone. And a railway line that runs exactly next to it that took its place in the 19th century. And, of course, a 20th century farm landscape and settlement pattern, which I can walk in every day and still see something new. And my new life at Cambridge... I have a similar sense. This is the wonderful front court, a beautifully proportioned 17th century face of the college. But from my new study window, I will also see parts of the old Dominican friary on which the college was founded. This is the Wren Chapel. There's also a disguised World War II bunker in the Master's Garden and a 1960s Master's Lodge, replacing a Victorian monstrosity, or so I am told. Hay-on-Wye is just the same. This is looking down the valley towards Hay Bluff. I came here with my friend five years ago, walking off his dyke. We walked from the wonderful coastline, Prestatin, in North Wales, through the wonderful uh, heather-clad Chloidian Hills, through the limestone dales, into um, the wonderful um, rolling whaleback hills of Shropshire, into the Wye Valley, across those lovely black mountains, and down into to Chepstow. Hay itself can characterise all those elements of history and all those wonderful stories from the past. And this isn't just something that applies to rural England. Still in London today, you can see the remnants of the patterns of the past. Marlebone High Street, with its little kink, is the only bit of ancient road that survives the grid pattern that was laid down in the 18th century these wonderful Huguenot houses in Spitalfields can bring a hurrying commuter up short with their beauty and their striking sense of history and place. Because people cleave to character and to place. Local accents and dialects survive. We can still easily detect the difference between Tyneside and Northumbrian, between the accents of Norfolk and Suffolk. Our very characters reflect and build on the landscape. Celt and Saxon, Northerner and Southerner, Belfast or Fermanagh, Pembrokeshire or Ennismond. And so it seems to me that the character and personality of the British people is inextricably intertwined with the story of place and its character. And our affiliation to place is extraordinarily strong. The gritty character of the Cornish, a hard living from a rugged landscape and a rugged sea, tin mining, farming, and almost an island mentality. How different from the wonderful pastures of, of devon with the fat cows and their thick hedgerows and tiny hamlets how different again from the harsher north with bare fells and open horizons where every valley has its own breed of sheep this is the herdwick but think of round england those wonderful sheep varieties the, the, the cotswold the exmoor you know every single area with its own character and today you know the colors in the landscape provided by the walkers um, against the muted background of nature. Contrast between our great university cities, um, Oxford in its cosy green valley with its golden stone glowing in the sun, the cooler grey of Cambridge with the wind blowing from the Urals, famously uh, bringing a chill even in the height of summer defined as much by their differences, aren't they? Left versus right, science versus the arts, parliamentarian versus monarchist, and the overlay, again, of people, politics, economics, history, shape and form. The East, and this is a wonderful mounds ma- at Sutton Hoo, but you have a sense always, don't you, in, in the Suffolk coast of looking towards the East, the Vikings, and that sort of wonderful sense of connection through the sea, the warriors lying with their treasures facing the land of their fathers. Garrulous Liverpool with its vibrant, diverse population and its buildings reflecting the maritime story and the trading story of Liverpool's great years. And then the curious, dramatic, legend-filled landscape of uh, the North Antrim coast and the Giant's Causeway. Everywhere has its own distinctive story, its own distinctive character, its own sense of place. So how do these things make us British? Because surely you might say the point I'm making is that we're localists. It's our relationship with a particular place, a particular landscape that we identify with. Yes, I am making that point, but I'm also making a bigger one, that this multitude and diversity is contained within a common boundary, our island of Britain, shaped by its edge as well as by its interior. Because surely, Britishness and nationality, localism, all of these things are connected processes. Local difference in Britain, that island nation, is embraced by this common, unchanging boundary, which has given us a sense of self-confidence as a nation, perhaps very differently. If you think of the changing boundaries of much of Europe, the mobile borders of France and Germany and Italy, the constantly changing boundaries of Eastern Europe, we have not had that. We've had that sense of containment and defined edges. But my message is not about flag-waving loyalties or sort of mega-loyalties in some sense, but the sense that we can enjoy, we can argue about our differences precisely because They are contained in this way. Our cultural soul is and belongs to these islands, but it's been enriched by this extraordinary process of local evolution. So Norfolk and Suffolk can continue to spark and Yorkshire and Lancashire to squabble away. And we can happily revive a sense of cultural identity through the languages of Wales and Scotland and Cornwall even, um, because we've had the confidence that we are more united ultimately than we are divided. But arguably, that is what's beginning to break down at the moment. Deeper differences are appearing. We seem to be less comfortable with living with each other, and we seem prepared to contemplate a different future. Why can that be? Well, surely the process of globalism is part of it. We watch the same television programs as our friends in America. We buy the same global brands. We're bombarded by the same media wherever we are in the world. And we don't accept a parochial view of the status quo anymore. Uh, we, we, We think in different ways. But might it also be, might it also be, that that sense of loss and uncertainty also derives from another source? Are we also losing contact with this landscape that has meant so much to us? And is our landscape being degraded, as Hoskins first identified in the 50s, to such a point that it is diminishing our relationship with the land and our sense of who we are? Now, if so, we should have seen it coming because this is not a new phenomenon. And in fact, we were the first country in the developed world to really set up a movement to protect our landscape. And the people who inspired that were the poets, the artists, and the writers. And we go right back, because they were the voice of landscape beauty. This is Poussin's Etienne Arcadia Ego of 1630, where this wonderful sort of contrived sense of a landscape, you know, classical, pastoral, a hint of death, Um, and ruined architecture. That was the archetype of beauty. And of course, in the landscape, people worked hard to create exactly that phenomenon. So at Stowe, you get the sense of um, Capability Brown, the gardener, head gardener at Stowe, creating the sense of Arcadia with the wide sweeping lawns, the classical buildings, an idealized view and indeed the same at Stour Head. But these were designed landscapes, created landscapes. They often swept away what was there. The big shift was in our relationship with our own landscape. Initially seen as a thing of terror, Daniel Defoe, on his tour through the island of Great Britain, wrote about Westmoreland, A country eminent only for being the wildest, most barren, and frightful of any that I have passed over in England or even Wales, he said. George Borough was writing something rather similar in Wales. So there was this sort of sharp contrast between the the beautiful, essential pleasure of these beautifully harmonious designed landscapes and the sublime, which was these awesome, um, terrifying landscapes of, of natural. Uh, beauty um, in the countryside. But then we had the picturesque movement with William Gilpin writing about the development of this notion of man-made beauty, the appreciation of nature enhanced by man's hand. Ideas, of course, that William Morris was to celebrate in the 19th century and Hoskins to pick up in the 20th. And in the 1760s, Gilpin popularised his ideas through accounts of the Lake District and the Wye Valley, very close to here in the New Forest, provoking the search for the picturesque. And the picturesque was both the clawed glass and the device used to view the landscape, but it was also nature itself. And Juvedale Price, that Herefordshire squire from this part of the world, whose essay on the picturesque rejected the designed landscapes of Stowe and all the rest of it in favour of viewing the real countryside as a work of art. And he loved these quirky, um, particular, characterful aspects of nature, the rutted cart tracks and the vernacular buildings and the ancient oaks, with their gnarled surfaces. And above all, what they did was they showed the traveller that you no longer needed to go off to Italy and to classical Europe in search of wonderful experiences. You could find it here at home, and in particular, in the Lake District. And it was the Lake District where the battle for beauty began. Because by the time Wordsworth published in 1810 his best-selling Guide Through the District of the Lakes He was tapping into a population hungry for an appreciation of our own countryside. And his statement that the Lake District was a sort of national property in which every man has a right and interest, who has an eye to perceive and a heart to enjoy, set out the basis for a universal stake in landscape that provoked not only inspiration and love and passion and delight in these landscapes, but also defence. And by then, the landscape needed defending. And it was the poets, it was particularly Wordsworth, who were the first activists. Because in the 19th century, the Lake District began to be exploited for the slate, for the copper, and other valuable minerals. Wordsworth raised the alarm when a railway was proposed through the Newlands Valley, and another was actually built to Windermere. With Coleridge, Ruskin and others, he campaigned against it. And it wasn't just the railway and the infrastructure. It was actually the tourists as well. The very tourists who'd bought his guide to the Lake District uh, were coming, as he felt, to threaten it. But it was not the tourists who provoked the most offensive assault on the landscape. And that came from bodies like the Manchester Corporation, who in 1877 bought the Thirlmere Catchment. Now, this is Thurlmere, painted by John Glover in the 1820s. This was the most admired, the most magical, the most painted view in the Lake District at that time. And Manchester Corporation wanted to drown this valley. It aroused huge opposition. It was the first big clash around landscape defence. But the combined efforts of Wordsworth, Coleridge, Ruskin, Octavia Hill, and Canon Hardwick-Rawnsley, the founders of the Trust, were also involved. They failed to protect it. And here's a contemporary photograph before and after. They did get it slightly reduced in size, but they did not save Thirlmere. And to cap it all, a new road, now the A591, for those of you who want to travel it and think this point, was blasted through the heart of the lakes, And the Manchester Corporation started planting conifers because they said that uh, native broadleaves would pollute the water supply. Can you believe it? Now, there had been, of course, some arguments before, but this was the first time that a public corporation had positively decided to assault one of the most precious landscapes in this country. And it gave rise to a huge movement of landscape protection. It led eventually to the establishment of the national parks. It led to the establishment of the National Trust and the immunity bodies, um, who many of us are familiar with, CPRE and others. But the pressures continued, because in 1919, another body was established, this time the Forestry Commission, to replenish the stocks of timber that had been so badly depleted. And they were looking for quick wins. They did not want to plant um, broadleaf trees in the lowlands. They wanted to afforest the... Uh, uplands. And this is Ennerdale um, in the 1920s. And again, there was a huge row about the way that these trees were just plonked on the landscape. And Re- Reverend Simmons, who by then was leading the newly established Friends of the Lake District, eventually negotiated with the Forestry Commission a settlement that the central lakes would not be planted in this uh, way. Um, uh, uh, an unprecedented never, never agreed anywhere else in quite such force. But by then, really, the pace and scale of development was accelerating everywhere. And this sense of development pressures, of new housing, of roads, of the expansion of the towns and cities, was so acute that a campaign was launched to introduce controls over development in the countryside. Clough Williams-Ellis wrote this polemic England and the Octopus, calling for legislation to protect England from the mean and perky little houses uh, we probably wouldn't use such language today, but we were spreading over rural England along every main road and into the open countryside. And in 1927, G.M. Trevelyan wrote a passionately worded pamphlet, must England's beauty perish, he asked rhetorically. Extolling the virtues then of the infant National Trust, the tiny National Trust, is the only way to guarantee conservation. He wrote, in an age where beauty, especially beauty of nature and landscape, is being destroyed with unexampled rapidity by modern inventions and economic and residential development, the desire to save beloved places from the ruin is much more widely and intensely felt than ever before. This was a real movement for change. And the government listened. Successive governments listened. And if you look back at the 1930s, the 1940s, Unprecedented legislation was passed to protect our beautiful landscape. The planning system, this is Sheffield contained by a green belt, controlling ribbon development, outdoor advertising. And full town and country planning came in in 1947. In 1949, the National Parks and Access to the Countryside Act was passed, establishing national parks, nature reserves, areas of outstanding natural beauty, a rights-of-way system which we treasure today and which many other countries envy us, establishing legally the right to walk um, on established rights of way. And this legislation was groundbreaking and world-beating, but it has to be said, um, against enormous pressures, because already in the 1950s, Hoskins was writing, since the year 1914, every single change in the English landscape has either uglified it or destroyed its meaning, meaning, or both. So that sense of despair was great, and we made some terrible mistakes. I mean, if you remember the widespread scale clearance of city centres and the, the establishment of some awful urban development... But it would have been a lot worse without it, and I'm absolutely convinced that uh, had we not had the planning system, the kind of sprawl that uh, overtook much of North America would certainly have happened here, because we did have the basics in place. And if you look today at the Weald of Kent, this is standing on the North Downs looking across the Weald of Kent. It is a quite extraordinarily beautiful landscape. There are many people living in that landscape. There are extraordinary, busy roads, and yet our planning system and the hard work of the conservation movement has retained a real sense of beauty that means so much, as I've been trying to explain it to us today. But we cannot be complacent, and you would not expect me to say anything else, really, because the pressures today are of a new kind and potentially more serious than ever before. Because... The existence of those long-held protections, that really important move of legislation in the middle of the 20th century is now under threat. This was the great big argument we had in my last year at the National Trust about the proposed national policy plan- planning policy framework, which many of you will remember this huge argument with the government. And extraordinarily, we won. I mean, I say won. We had a reprieve because it was rewritten in a much more balanced way and the recognition, apparently, that the landscape was beautiful and needed protecting should continue. But... You will have heard even more recently than that, ministers still talking in quite aggressive terms about the obstacles of the planning system, about the failures of um, the inability to get new houses built, the the, the the fundamental changes that are still being proposed. And yet the debate you know, still needs to be had. Because it's not just about whether development happens or not, and there are, of course, there's a case for development in certain places, but it's about the process of homogenization too. And I think you know what I mean, because almost without realising it, we are losing landscape character through the decisions we made. Where every high street starts to look the same, the sort of clone town phenomenon, every roadside verge looks the same, and every house built looks the same whether you're in Wiltshire or West Yorkshire. You probably have no idea uh, where that is, and that's typical of the development that we have allowed. And in many, many ways, roads are the worst because we seem to be absolutely ready to construct you know, dramatic uh, changes in the landscape without enough consideration of the the landscape through which they flow. I mean, we've seen the A30, um, we've seen the rows over the M3, we've seen major road development uh, riding roughshod through the landscape. HS2 may be the next one to come. But even small uh, so-called improvements can lose our sense of character in the landscape. The sort of clutter uh, that appears, you know, it seems... How many signs can a motorist possibly read? But look at the curbs, too. You know, this is, this is somewhere in quite um, open countryside. We have to have curbs, we have to have lighting. You've seen the mini roundabouts appearing everywhere, you know, the endless rows of planted trees looking completely regimented, and none of the character of of the existing landscape surviving. And soon we become lost in a sort of suburban nightmare. We lose all sense of direction and place. You could be anywhere, and in fact, you probably are. So it is quite simply too easy to lose the personality of a place, that sort of palimpsest that Hoskins described, those extraordinary landscape beauty that has evolved over centuries, can be wiped away by the thoughtlessness of bureaucrats and the um, lack of sensitivity to beauty and landscape in local decisions. But it doesn't have to be like that. We can do things well if we try hard, because we've seen uh, this is a new housing development in Gloucestershire, which absolutely builds on the traditions of the past and the sense of place and to lock it into the character of the local community. It only takes a bit of effort and imagination. It's not that much more expensive. It just takes effort. Road improvements can follow the line of the existing road. Uh, The National Trust had an extraordinary battle in North Wales on the Thleen Peninsula where a tiny little road was lost to a landslide. And they wanted to put in a completely new suburban road and we fought and fought and fought and finally got a piece of road that today you would see as exactly part of uh, the pre-existing landscape. But it took too much effort. The lack of sensitivity is the biggest problem. And if we get these things right, and we build beautifully, and we think about the landscape into which new development is going, I genuinely believe that some of the arguments about development will become less fraught and less... Uh, contentious because people are prepared to see new development in their area if they have a stake in it if they've been part of the process of decision making if they feel that they've been listened to and that the quality of what's going to be built uh, meets their aspirations and so the local plan process is so important for us to get involved because we do need houses we do need jobs we do need new development but we need it in a way that respects and has sympathy with what has gone in the past. The same is true of urban areas. In the 19th century, we were really rather good at this. This is um, Newcastle, which is a wonderful city, uh, which combines sort of civic activities, combines housing in the centre, it combines obviously retail and all these other things together. And we lost the plot on urban design really badly in the 20th century. And as we go forward, I think we've got to think quite radically about the kinds of urban development that we are going to create. We need places where people can live and work and play and go to the doctor and go to school and live a whole life without having to get in the car, without being on enclaves where there's only houses where there is only retail, the sort of mixed use and the the life and vibrancy of cities can be created if we work hard enough and we are prepared to invest the effort into getting it right. And after that post-war technological revolution in farming, we can also get it right too. We only have to look out here to see the countryside is still beautiful. We haven't lost everything. And there are places, this is a lovely example, where you know, we can still see that wonderful historic sense of landscape with old field boundaries, woodland, water still in the landscape. We can manage our farming activities in ways that respect and reflect that. We're making space for conservation. The large blue butterfly has been reintroduced in Somerset. Um, Red squirrels, which we talk about a lot uh, in my time at the Trust, but we can look after the red squirrels if we care enough to manage the landscape in ways that meet their needs. And we can still look after rare plants and orchids. But food production itself can be sustainable. We know how to do it, to combine um, efficient agriculture with living, breathing nature as an integral part of farming. We know how to do it if only we take the effort and take the time. And so it is by these means of public engagement, of Valuing that deep cultural inheritance of giving people the opportunity to take part in decisions that we, I believe, can protect what makes us British. Protecting our soul and the source of our inspiration, our history and the meaning of landscape. Now, that's quite a difficult message to give to politicians. It certainly doesn't provide a simple answer to debates about the future of the European Union or the UK or even their version of localism, which uh, on the whole isn't mine, actually, I'm afraid. But it's complicated, too, to achieve because it's subtle, it's sensitive, it requires time and debate and involvement, and it's not going to be one solution that fits everywhere. It's going to be local solutions, a genuine localism that is different in different... Places, But it is fundamentally our landscape that connects us to each other and to our history and to our future. Our landscape that tells us the story of our past and why we are what we are today. And it does seem to me that a time of economic pressure is precisely the wrong time to throw away those hard-won protections of the 20th century and to throw away the non-material things that we value, to destroy the source of our enrichment, our contentment and our connection. A civilised society cares about its past, about landscape, about nature, about history, but it also cares about our future and wants our future to continue to tell that story, that continuum of Hoskins. It doesn't stop, it goes on, but it needs to go on with respect for the past and to relish the differences that connect us to place and give our lives meaning. So Britishness, as many people have found before, is an elusive and and probably undefinable concept that link it to place, link it to people, link it to that sense of soul and deep empathy with the landscape. Recognize the significance in policy, but in practice, in day-to-day decisions, and sustain its quality for the future. We may find that we renew our sense of self-esteem and confidence and togetherness, our sense of who we are, why we are, and what makes us happy. And who knows what benefits may flow from that? Thank you very much.
0: Thank you very much. That was a fascinating journey through our beautiful countryside. Now it's your turn. Can we have some lights up, please? There we are. A question here, right in the middle. In the middle, yeah. So, just there. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Fiona. That was absolutely fascinating. You won't be surprised um, with my background uh, that I'm uh, going to ask you about
1: our creativity. Uh, we talk a lot about the past, and I recognize all that you say about that importance. But what about our future? Don't you think we can create massive new landscapes? which don't necessarily harken back to the past. I'm thinking particularly, obviously, of the National Forest, which we're planting right in the middle of the country, completely transforming, for the better, a landscape. But it's creative, it's not harking
0: back, it's harking to the future.
1: Yes, and of course I agree, and I think the um, opportunities are enormous. I mean, the woodlands in particular, I think, we have the lowest woodland cover of any country in Europe, and there's huge opportunities. But, you know, I think we have learned from the past, and the the National Forest is an example. We're not just putting enormous numbers of trees on blanketing in the landscape. It's It's an open landscape with glades, with blocks of trees, but also open fields with a sense of the mix... And the investigation and thought that's gone into where the new planting takes place, not only on degraded land but on land where there's a, it, it can be sense, you know, feel part of the landscape and feel that it fits into the landscape, has been has been very intense. So I absolutely agree. And, and the new farming landscapes will not be replicating the past because farming has changed out of all recognition. But I do believe need to learn from the past in order to find the future. So, or, uh, absolutely, we need to be more creative, but you know, we, we also need to look back in order to inform uh, the right way to be creative in the future, and the best way to be creative, nurturing what makes these places special.
0: Yeah. Um, this gentleman here. Is, uh, no, it's not. Hello, Jeffrey. Hello, Fiona. Um, how do you think we got to this stage on planning? Because the MPPF didn't come out of the blue it came out of political consensus that had been growing for 10, 15 years, that planning was an obstruction to development. So how do we all let them get away with that happening in the first place? Because many of the NGOs seem to be asleep when the NPPF happened.
1: Well, Jeff, absolutely right, in the sense that, you know, there is there's a c there's theres 2 things going on. One is there is this view that growth is actually the only thing that matters at the moment. You know, we're in a difficult time for the country, growth is the answer and as you will have guessed, I think that's too simplistic a view. Uh, We will lose too much and it's it's an unsophisticated view. But I think in a way the planning system is not perfect and I think it's been quite difficult for some of the NGOs to defend a planning system which manifestly hasn't got everything right. I mean, I showed some urban examples, but actually there are lots of rural examples too. And so I think what happens is that the planning system does need reform. There was no argument about that. It needs... There are areas where it takes too long and there are complications which irritate people. But actually what happened was the government then threatened to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And although we, we knew planning reform was coming, I don't think Many of us predicted that the NPF would be as bad. It was a very bad document as it was. So, you know, I think we have to be realistic that, A, there is, there is a need for development, but I was arguing for the quality of development. And secondly, the planning system needs to be both a protector of the landscape and needs to make good and timely decisions. And that's why the local plan process is so important. So I think it was a shock, because no-one expected quite such a terrible document. But that shock, in a way has taught us that those threats have not gone away.
0: The lady behind, did you put your hand up behind the last question? I think you did, yeah. Oh, it's the same. Okay. Anyone in the back there? Yes, right there with a the white shirt. So the up on your right. Perfect. Hi there, thank you. I so thought that was really interesting. With challenges like climate change in today's society, surely we do need to change
1: the environment slightly with um, things like wind turbines, etc., to actually protect it. So. Yeah, I mean, climate change is, you know, with us. Um, people argue about, you know, how fast things are going to change or not, you know, but there's no doubt that we have to plan for a future where energy needs to be provided in different ways and, and the sort of sense of... Um, planning for the long term, which we're not good at as a country. I think it's absolutely right. Um, I think, though, and and you wouldn't be surprised to hear me say this, I think we can do everything we do, we we need to do well. So, you know, I'm personally not in favour of huge wind farms on upland landscapes because, actually, we've treasured our upland landscapes. I explained where that movement had come from. Um, But I'm all in favour of smaller-scale renewable technologies, including individual turbines or small turbines, where they can genuinely fit in the landscape. Um, I think there is a huge challenge around energy efficiency, which we're not taking seriously, Um, and I think there are other things we can do to mitigate against climate change. I mean, landscape-scale conservation, um, you know, the whole question about management of water, water catchments, you know, all these things need to come together. So, again, I think if we go for the quick fix... We may find we're making bad decisions. I think short-term solutions are nearly always better thought through against a long-term trajectory, and, and I certainly think energy policy is one of those.
0: gentleman in front here has had his hand up for some time. Could you come down here? Thanks. Right here. With the grey hair. Oops, you got him. Um, Fiona, I live in Buxton in the Peak District, and just outside Buxton is a wonderful wild landscape—the the, the White Peak landscape. Now, the White Peak landscape is very much like that Yorkshire Dale pictures you were showing of the the the, um, the, the small farms, the dry stone walls, the copses put there by the Duke of Devonshire when it was his land. Um, but now we have far less farmers uh, who is maintaining the stone walls. The National Trust owns some small parts of it, yes, but. Should we be trying to maintain that very landscape when the whole economic basis of farming and the management of that landscape is so different now than from when it was created?
1: Well, I, I'm certainly not arguing for pickling an aspic. You know, I, I, as you, I hope you understood, John, from what I was saying. You know, the Hoskins evolutionary theory is that things go on changing. So I, I think we'd be quite wrong to think that the solution is simply to sort of nail everything down as it was in the middle of the 20th century and say, that's it. Um, But um, I do think, I mean, two things. One is that payments for agriculture do include payments to look after the stone walls, and actually there's been a very pragmatic response by the Peak Park, as you know very well, to saying, you know, these stone walls are more important than those, we'll let these fields be enlarged, but actually we want to keep that sense of place and identity through prioritising some stone walls to be protected. And I think it's also important, I would say, not to think that the future of farming is going to be just like it is now. Um, One of the interesting things that's happened around New York, and any of you who've been there will know, that there's a sort of revival of market gardening, in a sense, around New York, supplying the farmers' markets in New York. There's almost that sort of whole Hudson Valley um, ecosystem is coming back to life through... Um, small-scale dairy farming, um, vegetable farming, fruits, and all the rest of it. So the future isn't necessarily going to carry on being ever more mechanised, ever more large scale. Um, it's entirely conceivable that you know, new forms of farming will evolve where landscape traditions are an integral part of the offer. You know, the credibility of the food and where it's come from is an important part of why people want to buy it. So I, I think there are kind of futures that we can envisage um, where different, different models uh, will exist from that which we know from the 20th century the 20th century was not you know, despite some very heroic efforts you know, it was not a good story for conservation as we know and we need to do better in the
0: 21st right up in the back there uh, make um, that, like that one went up first you see, there we go perfect
2: thank you, very interesting um, and, and moving as well um, I, just to echo what um, somebody said earlier about creativity and to take up your point about sustainability, I feel that w- one of the problems um, that we particularly face in this country is due to a lack of, of belief in modernity. And, um, you know, the, the, the buildings that you protected in the National Trust were modern ones. And one of the problems I think of the 20th century was that we built these hideous buildings that did nothing but to try and Mm. echo the past. So, surely, to you know, development is not um, development is an inevitability. You know, with world population being what it is, we we will have to embrace that idea. The question is, can we do that? Um, by, by building beautiful, sustainable, modern buildings. Mm. I worry about the Gloucestershire Close that you mm. showed us a picture mm. of. You know, China is, is completely exploding and the Chinese realise they have a problem and they're turning to modern architects to build beautiful, completely ecological, vertical, sustainable buildings. Surely we need to put our faith a little bit more in the more creative architects who are thinking in terms of of sustainability
1: yeah I, i accept the challenge absolutely i think um and and i hope you know, I, I'm not suggesting it's a pastiche solution in the countryside at all in the sense that those buildings were not replicas of what was there before, They, they but they just had a sort of sense of integrity in place that was much more resonant with what was there before. And I think that uh, it's perfectly clear that we're going to have to accommodate many, many more people and many hundreds of thousands of houses, you know, ultimately. Uh, a lot of those will be in urban areas or should be in urban areas because that's where people are, that's where the jobs are, that's where we want to live. Um, and it's not just about do it in urban areas, ignore the countryside, there's going to be development in the countryside too and I do think um, architecturally you know, there is a a big challenge and opportunity for the architectural profession I've got a friend who I went to see in Cambridge a couple of weeks ago as part of my moving there who lives in one of the um, Field and Clegg Bradley award winning uh, houses in Cambridge which these wonderful green houses, they're green in every sense but they've also got gardens within the houses within the housing space beautifully done gorgeous to look at and very sustainable and i think that you know that we have to be much better at that and we're going to have to build a lot of housing in a much cleverer way, but we've got to have aesthetics. I suppose is what I'm saying, as well as sustainability and those other things. I think we have, we, we've sort of lost our eye as a nation, and aesthetics matters. And we need to have more confidence. Um, it's almost like a sort of 21st-century vernacular. We have to find, we have to find that. And it's not one thing, but it, it need, we need more bravery and and more um, respect. I think than we've shown to beauty. I'm
2: not to.
0: You want that up the top there? Yeah, yeah very good, Let's see. Just following on from, from that question, I mean, looking at that photo from this development in Gloucestershire, I, I would disagree. I, I think it just looks like it's always looked. And, uh, you know, I think of modern buildings like the cathedral in Coventry or the Bauhaus movement and, uh, you know, I think the argument you're making is preventing us to to go forward, really.
1: Well, we'll see. I mean, I, I could have shown you, and I probably should have shown you, rural housing that doesn't look, at, look like the past. But I, my point was that even, even when we... And we must go green. There's no question about it. But I, I would argue that sort of respect for place should form an integral part of our thinking. When we built the Trust's new uh, central office in Swindon, in the Brunel railway yards... You know, we had a really big debate. It's going to be an unashamedly modern building, very green, very light, very open, award-winning building. But actually, we also wanted it to sit in its context in, in a way that we would feel proud. And so we built a kind of 21st-century engine shed. It didn't look exactly like the engine sheds that Brunel had built, but it could kind have of drew reference from it. And actually, it, it was a great success. So it's not about either new or old pastiche. You know, there are lots of variations, but I do think respect for uh, the past, respect for context is an important part of being, in a sense, part of this evolutionary journey.
0: Right in the middle here, in white. What, here, here. I don't Wait a minute. Yeah, well, I think I prefer you to, because then we can all hear. Just pass the mic along. What future is there for the farming families in upland Wales and uplands across the country? For after all... Upland Wales farming families are the bastion of our culture. first
1: language is Welsh I hope you heard me say how important our upland landscapes are I'm absolutely, and I believe that we still need a farm landscape, some of you might have heard me arguing with George Monbiot um, on the radio the other night um, who, you know, he wants wolves and bears and all the rest of it, and I gently reminded him that people kind of need to be part of the solution too, but actually I mean upland farming is, is in a very very perilous state, I agree with you, and this winter has been absolutely horrific because of the weather so but again I think we're beginning to design farming policies I'm not sure we've got them right yet that sustain farming and landscape character there are huge arguments still about stocking levels of sheep and all the rest of it and some some people on one side some people there's not not a magic solution but you know these are living working landscapes and I think the fact that North Wales is different from the Pennines, is different from Exmoor, is important and, you know, critical to our sense of identity and and cultural value, and that the people are absolutely at the heart of that, as I hope I emphasised.
0: Annie, with grey hair here, with his hand up right in the middle. We could pass it up this way. Thanks. I'd like to just ask you a little bit about the urban landscape. Mm. Because one of the great uh, barriers to progress seems to me this catch-22 situation where the big building firms say, oh, we don't want... Everybody wants little boxes with Tudor beams and things on. And people won't pay for extra this and that to make them greener. And it doesn't seem that people have got the choice. And one wonders whether, A, the building regs are properly enforced and whether the building regs are actually progressive enough anyway?
1: Well, it's a complicated question. I don't necessarily know enough about the detail of the building regs. It does remind me, though, the debate back in the 90s about supermarkets and apples. And supermarkets were saying to us you know, everybody wants shiny green apples. Stop asking us to sell local British varieties. And actually, it turned out that people wanted bright green apples because that's what they were offered, and there was no choice. <laughs> and as soon as we did offer people wonderful native apples, everybody bought them, and it was a great success. And I think housing is, in a sense, the same. We've, we've just had virtually one model of housing, and you're right. And going back to earlier questions, I think architects and designers and... Um, planners, you know, all need to work together to think about the really creative reuse of huge areas still of derelict land in cities and close to cities. I mean, Leeds and Birmingham apparently, and I'm, I'm careful that I may have got the numbers right, but I mean, have enough land now to provide housing to meet our needs for the next five years. Now, of course, not everyone is in those areas, but it's just an example of the scale. But, you know, as I said, we've got to plan differently. It's not just about housing. I think the mistakes we made in the 70s were these great housing estates with no shops, with no public transport, with no facilities, barely a school or a doctor's surgery. I still see buildings going up Um, even near where I live in Sirencester, where, you know, the the houses, there are no community facilities being built alongside the houses. So we need to think in an integrated way, um, and whether it's building regulations or planning, a number of disciplines coming together to create places that people want to live and work and play and bring their children up and send their children to school, you know, because they are beautiful places. And I do think beauty, and that means green space, it needs trees, it means nature, it needs... Water, you know, we have to think in a holistic way about these things.
0: Right at the back, on the right there, you're, you're, you're nearer. Yeah, thanks, Dame Fiona. With the um, with us being on the cusp of uh, Common Agricultural Policy reform discussions at the moment, uh, that's going to set the framework for how farming responds to landscape over the next sort of seven years. As individuals, how wh- what do you think? What sort of Things should we be engaging with with farmers over the next seven years to express our sense of place our, what we value in the landscape but maintaining a sustainable viable productive um, economic landscape
1: gosh that's a big question and um, there's probably no simple answer to it other than um I mean, many farmers do have this sense of place and identity. They've either, you know, if it's an owner-occupied farm or they're long-term tenants, you know, they will have a feel for the land. And, you know, one of the things that I think farmers are increasingly responsive to is public opinion, actually, and engagement around the kind of role they play in the landscape. So there's no planning... I'm not arguing for planning control over farming or anything, but I am conscious that the farmers who are open, you know, open their farms to the public who, who, who are involved in their local communities, you know, very often find that they are reflecting the public desire, they, they, they're meeting public needs, they so may be providing access on footpaths and things like that, which actually builds their own reputation um, and the kind of sum of human happiness as well. Common agricultural policy reform is probably going to be, you know, less helpful than we want... At a, at a sort of macro level, but a lot depends on how we apply it in the UK and we may or may not have scope to do some really creative things with it. But again, the work the Countryside Commission did all those years ago on landscape character is, is all good stuff and we've got to, I think, reflect this is flashing at me now to so say I'm
0: talking <laughs> <Yeah>. too much
1: <laughs> we've got, to, I think we've got to work at it and we need to work at it together.
0: Thank you very much, that's all we've got time for. you yeah. <laughs> yeah. very